Good morning, church. How's everybody? Hey, big weekend so far. Big Georgia Southern win. Woohoo! Big University of Georgia win. Woohoo! I've got a message today that I think is pretty good. I'm going to do my best not to wreck the weekend. Okay? We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4 in just a few minutes. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 4. We are winding down a series of messages entitled Core, and Core is about the basics. Now, now not basic as in simple, basic as in fundamental. Uh, If you have a strong core, then you are a strong person. What is true physically is also true spiritually. We've been examining the core, foundational, fundamental tenets to the faith walk. Now, we've spent eight weeks on this. We could have spent eight months on this, uh, but we're winding down. We've got a couple of more following today's message. We've talked about world religions and how Christianity stacks up against even the three major monotheistic religions across the planet are dramatically different. No one can say correctly or intelligently that all religions are basically the same because that just tells me they've never studied world religions because Christianity stands opposed and in conflict with other religious systems of thought. We've talked about authentic faith. What's the difference between simply saying I believe and truly embracing authentic faith in Jesus Christ? Mere intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus versus intentionally deciding to follow him wholeheartedly. We talked about worship as our response to God and what God does. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. Last time we talked about Bible study. Tyler did a great job with that subject. Today we're going to talk about warfare. Warfare. The president of the Norwegian Academy of the Sciences, along with historians from the U.S., from Canada, from England, from Germany, from Egypt, they determined that since the year 3600 B.C., long time ago, Since 3600 B.C., the world has only known 292 years of peace. Think about that. In 5,600 plus years, the world has known less than 300 years of peace. It seems like mankind has been at war from the very beginning. That means there have been 14,531 wars in 56 plus hundred years. 3,640,000,000 people lost their lives. The collective value of the destruction would pay for a golden belt 97 miles wide and 33 feet high, and it would encircle the globe. Truly, it would seem that mankind has been at war since the beginning of time. And that is a statement that I'm not sure my generation and those that have followed can fully and truly appreciate. Today, I want to address another kind of war, another kind of war that's just as real, another kind of warfare that can be just as deadly. It's a familiar war. Today, we're going to talk about overcoming temptation, overcoming temptation. Every follower of Jesus Christ is going to face temptation. If you're serious at all about your faith, you've got to learn how to overcome temptation. Why? Because church, sin ruins everything. Sin spoils everything. Sin destroys everything. If you've got marriage problems, it is very likely you've got sin problems. You see, it's not a him problem, it's not a her problem. It could be a sin problem. Secrecy, bitterness, jealousy, anger. If you've got financial problems, it could be very well true that you've got a sin problem. 
irresponsibility, lack of self-discipline, greed, wanting something for nothing. If you've got fulfillment problems, I'm trying to find happiness and purpose in this life, but you just can't seem to do it, it is very likely that that's related to sin problems as well. David's sin in the Old Testament is some of the most egregious in all the Bible. David's sin would overpower and overshadow anybody's sin in this auditorium, both first or second service. That's one thing unique about the Bible. Unlike any other holy writing around the world, the Bible emphasizes the fallibility of its heroes. The Bible shines a spotlight on their humanity, on their failures. Our heroes were men and women of fallibility. They failed. Because you see, in this book, God is the hero. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David. David prayed following his sin in Psalm 38 verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. That's like saying, my sin has made me sick. I am unhealthy because of my sin. You see, the the consequences to David's sin with Bathsheba were far-reaching and brutal. He regretted the path he chose because he didn't see the consequences on the horizon. He didn't know what was coming. Later in the same chapter in verse 9, he writes, All my longings lie open before you, Lord. That's like saying you see everything. Every one of my sins, every one of my desires, God, you see it in vivid high definition. He goes on, my sighing is not hidden from you. You see, David tried as best he could for a solid year to resolve the aftermath of his sin, but he couldn't do it. It wore him down. It robbed him of his health. It took away his hope. So here David's being real with God. He's putting it out there. He's being authentic. All of his desires lay bare before God. He's begging God to forgive his sin because he can't live with sin's consequences. Church, listen, don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. I realize it sounds like an old-fashioned kind of rhetorical message from an old-fashioned preacher or something, but don't play with sin. Don't do it. Numbers chapter 32 says plainly, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, that doesn't mean that every dark and hidden and private personal sin is going to be exposed or brought into the light. What it does mean is that it will catch up with you. That's what the Bible teaches. Bank on it. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, you cannot mock God and his holiness. You're going to reap what you sow. Now, not every dot of suffering can be connected to a dot of sin. However, in a general fashion, this is the way the process works. Don't play with sin. A couple sits in my office. His face is in his hands. Tears of of anger and bitterness and betrayal are welling up in her eyes because of sin. Lust, immorality, they've broken something that was once precious to them both. Personal private sin has crippled their marriage. A young man storms out of my office because he refuses to connect the circumstance of his sin with the outcome they had hoped to avoid. A man loses 20 pounds in two months. It's not because he's on a diet, not because he's exercising. The weight's falling off because of grief, anxiety, 
worry and stress. You see, greed welled up inside him. He stepped across an ethical line. He did something not only unethical in his business, but illegal, and he's been caught, and now he's going to jail. Don't play with sin. Don't do it. It's not worth it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter wrote, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Bible says things like run from sin, flee from sin, turn from sin, avoid the wickedness. Repeatedly, over and over and over again, the Bible, God, because he loves us so much, he reminds us of the consequences of sin. I had a professor many years ago in school who would say, young people, Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you ever want to pay. And, you know, as a 19-year-old, we kind of rolled our eyes and thought, well, that's what an evangelical professor at a seminary is supposed to say. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized how true those words really are. I want you to understand the importance of overcoming temptation, the beauty of fighting on, of putting your head down and pressing forward of outlasting the temptation because there's beauty and there's blessing in it. Don't give in. Don't ever give in because we're blessed by God when we overcome temptation. Now, I got to be honest and forgive me, young people. I don't want to presume something upon you that isn't true, but from my vantage point, I fear we've raised an entire generation of young people who don't know what it means to overcome anything. Because their parents have spent every waking moment trying to remove the obstacles out of their path, trying to erase the difficulty, trying to cover up for their failures, trying to make everything all right and make everything go away. Parents, you got to stop shielding your children from difficulty. You got to stop removing the obstacles. How are they ever going to learn or know how to handle unfairness or difficulty or injustice in life if nobody ever teaches them how to overcome it? Look, your job as a parent is to point them at Jesus. Your job as a parent is to groom them into productive men and women in society. That's your job. Removing the obstacle, cleaning up their messes, that's the worst thing you could do for somebody you love. When I was in the fifth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Pfeiffer, informed me on a Tuesday that I would receive a paddling on a Wednesday. The principal was out, and so I had to brood over this for 24 hours. It was brutal. So like any fifth grader, I went home after school and I explained to my parents the injustice of it all. This was injustice of a high order. Now, I didn't use those words, but that's how I felt. Because what I was trying to convince mom and dad was that I was right. My teacher had been short-sighted. She didn't get the whole picture. I'm not the only one in the class who did something wrong. The teacher, the principal, in fact, the entire school was wrong. I was right. You know what? I'm so thankful that my parents didn't pick up the phone and call that teacher. I'm so thankful that my parents weren't those parents that barge into the principal's office twice a semester to kind of cover up what their son had done. My dad looked at me. He said, Michael, I just got one piece of advice for you. Because you see, they didn't buy into my act of innocence. He said, if I were you, I'd wear two pair of jeans to school tomorrow. 
I hadn't had my driver's license two months when I got a ticket for running a red light. I was 16 years and two months old, and I got a ticket for going through a red light. It was late at night. The intersection was empty. I dropped off my girlfriend after a date, and I shot through the red light, and here come the blue lights. In those days, I don't know if you had to do this or if my dad just wanted me to do this to teach me a lesson. You had to go to court to settle up. You didn't just mail in a money order or something like that. So we drove into town. I was a nervous wreck. We walked into a courthouse, big throne at the end of the, bill, at the, end of the room where the judge would sit, all the little peasants in the courtroom. We had all broken the law, and I am sweating bullets. As soon as the judge walks in from the door behind his seat and takes his place, my dad leans over and goes, I know this guy. We go way back. In fact, I did free printing to get him elected. Translation, Mike's off the hook. Dad's going to make it go away. Translation, i got a great dad. This is fantastic. Nope, that's not how it went. Dad made sure that I not only paid the fine out of my pocket, that the judge then sentenced me to four hours of defensive driving school three Saturdays in a row. That was brutal. But parents, I'm telling you, I thank God where I stand that my parents didn't clean up my messes. I thank God where I stand that they didn't remove the obstacles. I thank God where I stand, they taught me how to persevere, how to put my head down and outlast it, how to beat it, how to win. That's your job. God doesn't remove the obstacles or shield us from temptation in life. And God loves us far more than our parents love us. But he doesn't remove obstacles. He doesn't shield us from temptations. Life is filled with both. Instead, you know what he does? He always makes a way for us to grow through the experience. And it's in the growth that we receive the blessing. Great verse, great verse. I memorized it when I was a teenager. You ought to at least write it down, if not memorize it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul wrote, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, you're not the lone ranger. Don't feel like you're being picked on. Your temptation's no more powerful than someone else's. Everybody faces temptation, he goes on, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Interesting Greek word. Here it's translated tempt or temptation. It could be translated test or trial. Look, here's the big idea today. I put it in the program. I want to make sure you get it. The very thing, the very thing the enemy would use to destroy us, temptation, can be used by the Father to bless us. Did you know that? The the very thing that the enemy would use to cripple your marriage can be the very thing God uses to bless your marriage. The very thing that the enemy would use to destroy your reputation, cripple your influence, God can use to bless you. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. Baptism was the first of two prerequisites Jesus would have to accomplish before starting or beginning his public ministry. Baptism was first, and in chapter 4, the testing, the temptation, was second. Look at Matthew 4 and verse 1. Matthew writes, 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, same Greek word, could be tempt or could be test. But notice, the important part of that phrase is at the very beginning. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by God, by God's Spirit. Now, wait a minute. I thought God never tempted anyone. Well, you're right. He doesn't. We're going to read that in a minute from James chapter 1. God does not produce the temptation, but God leads us into temptation for testing purposes. Keep reading. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Notice, Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. And a Jewish person, when they read Matthew 4, they immediately make the connection between the Old Testament and the New. You see, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he wrote down the Ten Commandments. There was a connection here. The children of Israel, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, were led into the wilderness to be tested by the Spirit of God. Matthew in sort of a subtle way, is claiming Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is Messiah. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Well, that makes sense. Jesus was hungry. He needed food, but as you'll see in a moment, he knew he needed God more. You see, that's one of the reasons we fast. I have never fasted for 40 days, not even close. But the reason I practice this spiritual discipline is because fasting, unlike anything else, teaches the body that while I need food, I need God a lot more. That's why many people fast. In fact, Jesus answers, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I need bread, but I need God more. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city. That would be Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Oh, the enemy's about to quote scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 91. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You see, in the Old Testament, God had promised to care for Israel. That's what the holy city, the capital city of Jerusalem, and the holy temple, that's what they represent. They symbolize God's covenant, his agreement to care for his people. That's why he took him there. But here's the kicker. While God has promised to care for us, we cannot demand it. You see? That's the difference. The temptation here is that Jesus demand God to treat him like the son of God. Come on, Jesus, God owes it to you. You're special if you truly are the son of God because doesn't the Bible say he'll always care for you? He'll look after you? Moses did the same. Watch how Jesus responds, verse 7. It is also written, Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, do not put the Lord your God to test. You see, Moses wanted the children of Israel to understand the same thing I'm trying to communicate to you. God has promised to care for us. He's promised to provide for us, but we cannot demand it. You see, we get to feeling pretty special about ourselves, pretty good about ourselves. God owes us something. Keep reading. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. What's ironic about that third and final temptation is all the kingdoms of the world already belong to Jesus. He already owned them all. Okay? Watch how Jesus responds. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice that Jesus responded to the temptation using scripture all three times. That's a good habit to get into. He quoted scripture to overcome the enemy. Quoting scripture is a powerful tool to overcoming temptation, but you got to know it. You got to read it. You got to memorize it. You got to be aware of it. Okay? Verse 11, then the devil left him. The angels came and attended him. That is the pattern in scripture. That is the pattern that is repeated by James in James chapter 4. Now, from those few verses, it is very, very obvious to me that the enemy acts in primarily three ways. The enemy tests us. He, he tempts us in three different ways, in three different categories. These come from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. John says, we sin when we give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are John's words. Those three things are illustrated here in the temptation of Jesus. The lust of the flesh. Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. Temptation, church, can come in the form of physical needs. My body needs it. It becomes a temptation. It actually grows out of my own human desires. Then there's lust of the eyes. He took him up to the high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You see, Jesus was supposed to desire them. A certain kind of greed was supposed to be welling up in Jesus by appealing to the lust of his eyes. And then the pride of life. Throw yourself off the temple. God owes it to you. He'll take care of you. You're special. You're unlike anyone else. God has promised to care for you. Put him to the test. The pride of life. This is how the enemy attacks us as well. He appeals to our physical appetites. He presents something very attractive that captures our interest. Oh, now you've got my attention. And then he strokes our ego. He wants us to feel like we're owed. God owes us something. Here's another way to look at it. His, His tactics are wide and varied, but again, they fall into three general categories. Sensory appeal, the lust of the flesh, sensory appeal. My human appetite is what gets me in trouble because my desires are so strong. That's part of being human. There's partial truth. You see, because the enemy never tells the whole truth, ever, ever. You can go all the way back to the very first temptation, Genesis chapter 3. The enemy didn't give Adam and Eve the whole truth. He gave them a little piece of it, the piece that sounded most appealing. They couldn't see the consequence of their actions. That's what he does to us. And then doubt and impatience. i got to be honest with you, I struggle with this. What's taking so long, God? I work for you every day of my life. I'm special. I deserve this. What's keeping you from working or acting? Again, you can go back to Genesis 3 in the garden. The enemy offered a quick fix, a quick solution. You eat the fruit, you'll be like God. Doesn't that sound good? Because you're special. Turn with me to back of your Bible, almost to the very back. Go to James chapter 1. Go through the book of Hebrews. If you get to 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John, you've gone too far. 
Look at James chapter 1. During World War II, there was a very famous Christian minister named Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany. He was imprisoned. He suffered for his faith. Nowadays, he's considered a theologian because of his writings. He writes a lot of things that are in books that I read when I study and prepare messages. And regarding this passage that we're about to read, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following. Follow me. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over our flesh. All at once, a secret, a smoldering fire is kindled. And at that moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The powers of discernment and decision are taken from us. That is the message of James chapter 1. Look at verse 13. When you're tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You understand that God does not do the tempting, but as we've already discovered, he may lead us into the temptation that we might pass the test. You see, God couldn't yield to temptation or wouldn't. You could say it this way. Jesus, because he was 100% human, he could have sinned in Matthew 4. He could have given in. But because he was also 100% God, he would not. You see, God is not subject to the vulnerability, vulnerability that we suffer from regarding our sin. If he were, he wouldn't be holy. You see, that's what holiness means. Holiness means that God is 100% all the time, all at once, God and God-like. There's not one millisecond of a day where God is anything other than God-like. There's not a moment in time, eternity past or eternity future, when God will not act and be God-like. That's holiness. Keep reading. No one should say that God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Those are fishing terms. Read it again. Each one is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The original language reads like this, to catch or capture by bait. We're talking about fishing here. Man's fallen nature, my sin nature, produces a strong desire to enjoy something or to acquire something. I'm looking for fulfillment, and so I take the bait. Keep reading. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So my depravity, my sin nature, produces the desire in me, and then my desire takes the bait, and now I'm in a battle for my life. Now, from those three verses, there's all kinds of good stuff there to help you overcome temptation. A few things. Let me point out. Number one from verse 13, temptation is inevitable. Temptation is inevitable. You might as well go ahead and write it down. Nobody lives above the fray of temptation. You see, it says... When you are tempted, it doesn't say if you're tempted, 
It says, when you are tempted, temptation is inevitable. As long as I'm human, I will wrestle with temptation because my nature is bent towards sin. Sin is my native language. That's why I speak it so fluently. That's why I'm so good at it. See? You cannot ask God to remove the temptation. I've had more than a few people in my ministry career say, Pastor, why doesn't God just remove the temptation? You can't ask him to do that. Because if you ask him to remove the temptation, you also disqualify yourself from the blessing of obedience. You see? Without temptation, obedience and the subsequent blessing couldn't exist. You can't have one without the other. James chapter 1 is about primarily two things. Trials, tribulations in the first 12 verses, and temptation in the last few verses. You see, you cannot ask God to take away the trial, to take away the difficulty, to remove the problem, because when you do, you forfeit the blessing of perseverance. You cannot ask God to eliminate the temptation, because when you do, you forfeit the blessing of obedience. Temptation is inevitable. Also from verse 13, it's universal. It's, it's when you are tempted... No one should say. No one implies the idea that everyone is included. Everyone will face temptation. It's universal. Temptation plays no favorites. It's not like the businessman faces temptation, but the homemaker does not. No. It's not like the husband faces temptation, but the wife does not. No. It's not like the church member faces temptation, but the pastor does not. No. That's not the way it works. Temptation is universal. Uh, from verse 14, it's a pretty obvious pattern. You can kind of see how this plays itself out. It involves three things. One is implied, two are stated. The bait is implied, according to verse 14. Everyone is tempted when he's dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The bait, that's something implied. Something becomes the object of my interest, like, oh, there's the bait. Now you've got my attention. I'm drawn to it. Then the desire, that's my longing for the bait. That, becomes, that comes from my sin nature. That comes because I am who I am. I'm broken and fallible before God. And then there's the persuasion or the enticement is the word James uses. It's the persuasion that strengthens and builds the desire to take the bait. It's the persuasion. It's that fast conversation that goes through your mind when you're trying to decide, resist or give in. Oh, it'd be much better if you gave in. You'll feel a whole lot better if you give in. Things are going to go better for you if you give in. It's going to be so much better if you give in. That's the persuasion. And again, the whole process is seen in fishing. If you're a fisherman, you know all about this. There's this big, fat, happy bass, and he's down on the bottom, and he's wagging his tail, and he's got everything around him that he needs. He's got plenty of provision. All of his needs are met. He's safe. He's secure. But then all of a sudden, here it comes. And it captures his attention. And his own desire begins to burn. And so he leaves the safety and the security of his home, of his safe space, and he takes the bait. And now he's in a fight for his life. And note the consequences from verse 15. The consequence is death. When desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. When sin grows up, 
it gives birth to death. Now, that doesn't mean that we die every time we give in to temptation. Otherwise, we'd all be dead, right? But it's a kind of death-like existence. That's what's being described here. It's a death-like existence. You continually give in to that sin, and there's no hope. There's no optimism. There's no winning. There's no fire. There's no growth. Although temptation is inevitable, we're all going to face it. Yielding to it is not. You can beat it. You can overcome it. Winning, according to James, comes from dwelling on what is good. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Do you know what we forget when our desire overwhelms us and we take the bait? Like Bonhoeffer said, in that moment, God is quite unreal to us. We forget that everything good in life comes from God. That's what we forget. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that will destroy you, everything that is bad on planet earth comes from sin. The way we beat and overcome temptation is by responding to the good in us. The good God, Jesus Christ, spirit in us. Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What is that? Birth through the word of truth. What does that mean? That's new life in Christ. That's old things that are passed away and all things become new. That's what it is. That's what's beautiful about the transformation that takes place when someone truly embraces authentic faith in Jesus Christ and dedicate themselves to following the Son of God. When we overcome temptation, it's because we've acted on or we've exercised the truth, the life that's in us. That is the path to blessing. James chapter 1 in this passage contrasts the father of darkness who only delivers sin and death with the father of light who only delivers good and perfect gifts. One more time before I quit. This is what I hope you get. The very thing the enemy would use to destroy us, temptation, can be used by the father to bless us. You see, and I can't change my desire. I can't change who I am on the inside. God's in the process of doing that in a process we call sanctification. We're going to talk about that next time. What I can do is overcome the temptation. See? That's why the temptation itself is not sin. Yielding to it is. Now, what do I do when I fail? What do I do when I take the bait? How do I respond? Thank God he's made a remedy. He's made provision. You see, the Bible teaches that what we try and cover, God will ultimately uncover. Happens every time. What we try and cover up, what we try and pretend didn't happen or doesn't exist, God will always uncover. But here's the beauty. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, in other words, I gave up, I took the bait, it's going to ruin everything if I don't change the course. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. Again, what we cover, God will ultimately uncover. But if we confess our sin, that means if we uncover, God will cover. That's the beauty of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Look, my prayer for you is the same as my prayer for me. God, help us overcome temptation so that we might receive the blessing of obedience. Let's pray. Father, I am truly grateful for your son Jesus Christ in whom I find forgiveness. The one who covers my sin, the one who buries them deep in the deepest ocean. Father, Without him, we wouldn't stand a chance. We wouldn't have a prayer. We would just continually give in to suit ourselves. So, Father, grow us even this week as we face one temptation after another. Strengthen us, build us into men and women who not only want to follow Jesus, but who know how to overcome temptation. And I pray it because of Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you. Hope you have a great weekend. I'll see you next time.